I'm Navjoit Lada, analysis editor, and I'm joined in this podcast by three of the authors of a recent analysis article that takes a look at the European Medicine Agency's plans to fast-track approval of drugs in certain scenarios, known as the Adaptive Pathways Programme. We have with us Courtney Davis, Senior Lecturer at King's College London. Hi, Courtney. And Peter Gotcher, Director of the Nordic Cochrane Centre. Hi, Peter. And finally, Joel Lexchin, Professor at York University in Toronto, Canada. Hello, Joel. Hi, thanks so much for joining us all. Um, so let's talk a bit about a bit about the programme. Um, it comes on the back of pressure from the pharmaceutical industry. And as you say in the article about drug authorisation, the industry has long contended that the process is too complex and expensive, delay, delaying patients' access to life-saving drugs. Um, so can I just ask you, what kind of data are they using to justify these statements? And is there anything to their claims? Joel, can I put that question to you? Sure. So the first, there are a number of different answers to your question. So first off, the data about how much it costs to bring a new drug to market comes from um, the Tufts Center for Drug Development in Boston. Um, this, first of all, this is a partly industry-funded um, center, but more important than that is that the data is based on um, information that's given to the researchers there by a select group of companies for a select group of drugs. None of that data is made publicly available, um, so nobody else can check the calculations. Some of the um, costs that go into this are because of very large um, clinical trials. Very large clinical trials are often because the drugs that are being investigated have marginal benefits and you need large numbers of people to show um, those marginal benefits. And finally, um, at least half of the money that is calculated um, as the cost of bringing a new drug to market are what are called opportunity costs. And these are this is money that's not actually spent. This is money that the drug companies say that they could have made had they um, invested their money in something else. So this is, I'm a doctor, so this is like me saying to my patients, well, I could have made a lot more money if I would have spent my time um, on my banking and stock investments than in seeing you. So I'm gonna charge you extra for your visit because um, seeing you has actually cost me money. Uh, the the second um, way to answer that question is to look at the degree of innovation. So when we look at um, the new drugs that have been approved in Canada over the past roughly 20 years, we see that there are about 350 new products, new, new drugs, but in fact only about um, 10% um, show any major therapeutic innovation. Look at another subgroup of drugs. These are first in class. Again, we're only looking at about one in six of these products that offer any major new therapeutic benefits. So most of the products that the drug companies are bringing onto the market 
are really only at best marginal improvements. Um, so neither of the industry's arguments about um, expense or um, the need to get p new important drugs to patients more rapidly um, have a lot of validity. Right, so they don't really um, stand up to that kind of scrutiny, but we have this program that's come in. Um, we'll just talk a little bit more about what the program will involve. Um, so traditional drug approval goes through a kind of set path of phase one, phase two and phase three trials, and then the data is submitted to the EMA for approval about the balance of efficacy and harms. And then if a drug is approved, it will be monitored um, with post-marketing surveillance to make sure that it's safe. Um, Courtney, can you tell us what does the new adaptive pathway look like and how, how does it differ to that traditional pathway? Okay, so there are two key ways um, in which regulatory standards can be lowered. So, um, with adaptive pathways, it's likely that more drugs will be approved onto the market after phase two studies, but before phase three studies are completed, and that more drugs will be approved on the basis of surrogate endpoints of drug efficacy, which are um, outcome measures used as a substitute for clini clinically meaningful endpoints. And it's really important to understand what this will actually mean for patients in terms of increased uncertainty. So um, recent estimates indicate that about 40% of compounds that successfully complete phase two studies go on to fail in phase three, mostly because they're ineffective or unsafe. And with respect to surrogate endpoints, um, a problem with surrogate endpoints is that they don't rely reliably predict patient benefit. So um, a very important recent analysis of 36 cancer drugs, for instance, which were initially approved on the basis of a surrogate measure, found that after about four and a half years in the market, only five of the 36, that's 14%, subsequently demonstrated um, an uh, improved survival in a randomized controlled trial. For 50% of those drugs, um, subsequent post-marketing studies actually failed to show any benefit in relation to improved survival for the cancer drugs. So this, I think, gives an indication of the some of the problems that may arise and also the probability that drugs may approve be approved onto the market that later turn out to be unsafe or ineffective or both. Okay. Um, so potentially we'll have um, these new drugs that that we don't we won't have the kind of full a full picture of um how safe these drugs are and they'll get through on these pathways one element of the plan um is greater reliance on observational data to try and um spot some of these problems and um you know then they'll be um quickly able to pull them off the market but if we know anything from what's happened before and we include the BMJ's investigations it's that there's a lack of ability or will sometimes to spot these problems and then difficulty in responding quickly as well and and taking patients off these medications so how do you think this will work in practice and what is the EMA doing to tackle these known issues Peter can I ask you to answer that one we already know that it won't work in practice the EMA goes against solid knowledge. We have about what happened in the past and what is very likely to happen in the future. Uh, observational studies 
which the EMA euphemistically call real-world data, as if these data should somehow be better than more reliable data from randomized trials. Uh, these observational studies, we already know that they are pretty poor at picking up even lethal harms. Um, we didn't really find out that uh, Vioxx and the other COX-2 inhibitors increase heart attacks and heart death before the companies started to do trials in old people. And then we could see in randomized trials, oh my God, these drugs double the incidence of heart attacks and death. And um, yet we had known about them for quite some years. And then we found out that some of the very old drugs, ibuprofen, which you can buy without a prescription, and diclofenac, they also double heart attacks, and they have been on the market for maybe 40, 50 years by now. So this is just one example that the system the EMA proposes, we already know, it just won't work. And this is not only when talking about harms. The EMA also has this illusion that by looking at observational data, we will also find out whether these drugs have benefits. For example, in patient populations that were not studied in phase two trials. This is being naive to the extreme or worse than that, because we already have very solid knowledge that this we just cannot do, no matter how we try to adjust for differences in one population that was treated and another population that was not treated, we simply cannot allow ourselves to abandon the idea of doing randomized trials to find out what the drugs do to us, both in terms of benefits and harms. Mm, so there are big, big concerns there. I mean, you've outlined some of the problems with um the Adaptive Pathways program. And for the full background, listeners can read the full article. There, there are other issues, even, even beyond the ones you've described here um, now. But um, is there a scenario you can imagine where this program might work in the case of genuine patient need? How might that work? Well, I have much difficulty seeing anywhere where it would be a good idea. There might be situations, but they would be very rare. For example, cancer drugs have often been brought forward as an example that we need early access to promising cancer drugs. And yet, there are systematic reviews that have told us that on average, new cancer drugs are no better than old off-pattern cancer drugs. So again, it's a complete illusion to think that we will get good cancer drugs by not studying them properly. We won't. Well, we've also um, seen the publication of uh, EMA's report into their pilot program of the of the program. And did that did that shed any light on whether there might be some sort of successful uses of the of the pathway? Um, no, it really didn't. Um, part of the problem with the pilot program, as they called it, was that 
it actually was concluded before any of the drugs had been approved for marketing. And there are two consequences of that. One was that um, we have no detailed information about any of those drugs. We don't even know which ones were in the pilot project. We don't know anything about the design of the studies, um, either in the pre-marketing phase or that were planned for the post-marketing phase. Um, we don't know how the EMA is going to define unmet need in relation to these drugs. Um, and so, um, because all of this information is deemed commercially confidential because the drugs have not yet been approved. So there's a complete um, lack of transparency with respect to the pilot project. Um, and um, there's also a complete lack of data, further information about how adaptive pathways would work in practice. And because the drugs have not been approved onto the market yet, we don't know in practice whether this idea that we can collect observational data and this will quickly um, resolve uncertainty is going to work. And, and as um, Peter just mentioned, there are very good reasons for thinking that it's not going to work. So the pilot project is very problematic in that respect and doesn't provide the kind of evidence that we would expect with, with broadening the category of drugs that can go on the market on the basis of limited and uncertain data. Okay, so what do you suggest happens now? I think the, the programme is set to roll out. Is there any opportunity for further discussion or any lessons that we can take for similar programmes that might be helping, happening elsewhere? I think what we need is a really inclusive discussion now about... Um, about the scientific and ethical justifications um, for early approval. I think we need a much broader, more inclusive discussion about this. Under what circumstances, as you, as you just asked, under what circumstances might it be appropriate to approve drugs onto the market um, on the basis of more limited data? And, you know, it might be that in certain limited circumstances, for, for instance, in the face of public health emergencies or in the face um, in the case of very, very rare disorders where it's difficult to actually um, gather a full data set because of the sort of small numbers of patients involved, it might be in some circumstances that um, early marketing or marketing on the basis of more limited data would be appropriate. Um, but I think that we have to be very careful about thinking about those situations. And it's certainly not the case that even in the face of urgent clinical and public health need, that it's always in patients' best interest to access drugs before there's sufficient evidence of drug efficacy and safety. Um, and um, a number of the early um, HIV AIDS activists who were involved in, in advocating for early access to the AIDS drugs when there were no treatments available are now warning about some of the dangers of, of early access. So I think we have to be very careful about how we proceed on this and it shouldn't be left just to the EMA to discuss these problems. And the second issue is that this has repercussions for funding um, by national health services. So when drugs that are approved on the basis of uncertain evidence are funded, um, for instance, on the NHS, this has implications for other patients because that money cannot then be spent on other treatments. So it's not just the case that, um, that the patients who are taking these um, medicines may subsequently find out that they were harmful or ineffective. It also means that those, that money that was spent on those drugs might have been used 
on more effective treatments for other patients. I believe that what the EMA has introduced here is such a serious setback that something needs to be done uh, to stop the EMA, quite frankly. But what we can do, and we have already started this, is to raise the issue in the European Parliament. They must really act now because this is a serious setback in drug regulation. Great. Okay. Well, thanks, um, Joel, Peter and Courtney for talking to us today. And that analysis article, Adaptive Pathways to Drug Authorization, Adapting to Industry, is now available on the bmj.com. 